When I was a kid, never had to worry about what I did. But I'm a man now, what's the plan now? Gotta get it done, no time for fun now. Take me back when I was a kid, never had to worry about what I did. But I'm a man now, what's the plan now? Gotta move on, those days are gone now. Take me back. Mike Young, stories that need to be told. Day one in the CBS studio, and it is beautiful and cool and high level as you can be, and I feel blessed. Thank you, Jordy, Jordan Winter, my producer, who set this whole world up. Jordan and I did, Jordan worked with me on My Man is a Loser, my first movie that I wrote and directed, starring Michael Rappaport, Brian Callen, John Stamos, and Jordy was there from day one, just grinding it out, just not even complaining, but just with a backpack and maybe the same shorts every day like I had going (laughs) and just not complaining about anything but just handling things and all I remember about shooting my man as a loser is going Jordy where's my phone Jordy where's my phone where's my computer yeah you you had that one bag that uh 2010 NBA all-star game still have it yeah every day where's my bag where's my computer Changing, changing the script for yeah. the night before, you know, the night before to go the next day. That's what I wanted to talk about today on this episode. I want to talk about writing and directing and how heavy it is, and how if anyone out there is interested in the business or not, just that it never ends. Like the writing process on a movie, it just keeps going. So, yes, you better make sure that your script is tight as can be before you even consider shooting a movie. Even though you'll read stories like, you know, uh, Casablanca not having its script done before they went shooting. But that was the old days when you could, you know, they knew what stars were in the movie and they had guarantees that people were showing up. But now you better make sure your script is damn tight. And even when it is tight, you get around, uh, you know, being around the actors, I started to realize, oh, shit, Michael Rappaport's got the funniest style that I could write to, like even deeper than what the character had. And so, you know, getting to know his voice the night before we'd go shoot, boom, I'd go, I'd start rewriting for him, you know, and I would think to myself, you know what, this dude deserves more dialogue because he's entertaining. And at the end of the day, you're going, you know what, all we're doing is entertaining here. That's it. So. And look what ended up happening. I mean, you had John Stamos, Brian Callen, Michael Rappaport, and not to kind of put anyone else who's in the movie aside, but those are three heavy hitters. Heavy hitters. And those three, look at what they've been doing since My Man is a Loser. They're all just at the peak of so many different industries. Yo, my mom called me yesterday. She's like, did you see John Stamos' new show? I think they stole a lot of your stuff from My Man is a Loser. Oh, you're talking about Grandfather? Grandfather. And obviously, Danny Chun and and Fogelman, the guys that write it, are quality, high-level dudes, majorly, and they're not stealing anything. And I'm not the first person to think, wow, Stamos should play a single great-looking playboy. (laughs) I'm probably the last person that thought that and that put him in. But I thought it was pretty funny. She called me and said, you got to watch this show. And I did watch this show. And he's a pro. Stamos is a pro. But let's talk about let's talk about my man as a loser. So today I just want to talk about 
what it was like directing those dudes for my first time and writing my first movie and how it all came about. And it came about in some kind of crazy, weird, miraculous way. So I'll just tell, I'll, I'll just, I'll lay it out for you. So obviously I come from stand-up comedy. I've been doing comedy 15, 16 years. You know, I really never considered myself doing stand-up until my ex-girlfriend said to me one day, you don't take it seriously. You're not even at the comedy clubs every night like everybody else. Boom, that's all she had to say, and it was game on. And that was about, that was probably 12, 13 years ago when my ex, Rebecca, told me I was not dedicated to the craft. And that's the type of dude I am. All you got to do is put me to the challenge and say one thing, and it's, I love a good fight. So, cut to, did some writing, worked with Doug Allen on Entourage, knew, you know, worked in the writer's room, punched up some jokes, helped out with some storylines, uncredited, but just had an office and I was in there every single day at Entourage. And so Doug and I developed a friendship for years and years and years, and he's to this day one of my best buddies. And one day, some wealthy dudes, David and Eric... I'll leave their last names out of it for now, but they came to Doug and they were like, hey man, we'd love to hire you for a movie. We, we think we want to get in the movie business. And Doug's like, yeah, everybody wants to get in the movie business. You know, that's great. You guys got an idea? Well, we don't really have like a full idea, but like, you know, we don't really always get along with our wives and we can kind of like love partying. Maybe there's something there. And Doug's like, I don't know what you guys are talking about, but go talk to Mike Young. And Doug called me one day and he goes, dude, there's some wealthy businessmen out of New York that are going to call you. I was like, cool, for what? He's like, they, they want to be in the business. And they want, they want, maybe want you to write a movie for them. I said, cool. Next thing I know, I get a phone call from David Golden. And he's like, hey, man, I'm going to be on a layover in L.A. Can you meet me at a deli? Went to Factors Deli, sat across from David. He basically said, man, we've, 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 we've been dying to get in the movie business, man. And like... You know, you got anything in the romantic comedy world, like in the romantic comedy vein that you're thinking about writing? And I, of course, I had a couple ideas on the table ready to go. And then he started telling me about his relationship with his wife and how he could go to Vegas and, you know, have fun. And, you know, him and his boys would always go and they'd be come back and be scared to talk to their families. And I just said, you know what, dude, give me a week. I'm going to come back to you with an idea. <clears throat> That's amazing. I mean, think about it because of all the people that Doug Allen knows. And there's a thousand of them. A th- a 10,000. Yeah. And he he recommended you. Yeah. Isn't that great? That's wonderful. When, you know, Doug and I have always been kindred spirits. You know, I even get mistaken for him when he's lucky. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I was at a Tulane event, like, a couple of weeks ago. And some I had my baseball hat on. And Doug and I look a little bit alike. But this woman jumped in my arms and hugged me. And she's like, Doug, it's Evelyn. Hi. I'm like, wow, you really don't know Doug. Because <laughs> you're in my arms right now. And... So yeah, we've we we you know we get mistaken for each other once in a while, but yes, Doug recommended me, and he's done it more than once. That's high praise. 
I, I and I take it as high praise. I do. And Doug and I, we're, we're you know we're working on a project together right now, and you know the single mic thing. That's you know we're gonna we're regrouping and getting that whole thing together right now. And it is high praise, and I and I don't take it lightly. So they go to Doug and say we want to hire you. Doug says I can't do it. A B you can't afford me. And C call Mike Young because he's my funniest friend, and I think you guys will click. And next thing I know, I, I meet with David and I say, give me one week. I'm going to come back to you in a week. And a week later, I came back and I said, what? And I just used myself. Let's be real. I just used my position of, of where I was in life. And at the time, a lot of my married buddies were, um, you know, going through single mic phase. A lot of my married buddies were just coming to me thinking I had the answers. So I said, what about doing a movie where you and your, you know, we're two married guys aren't clicking in their relationships and they get busted doing some dumb shit and they got to go to their best friend who's single to help them get their swagger back. It was a simple concept, something I could definitely write easily that I felt was kind of coming through me at the time. And they bought and they literally bought it and they said, cool, let's make a deal. Call your lawyer. And it was just like that. So one day I'm at Factors Deli and I'm talking to him about potential ideas. One week later, I send him a beat sheet. Here's your movie. They say yes. Call my lawyer. Back and forth, back and forth. And I remember the lawyers were kind of battling it out. And lawyers, you know, God bless my lawyer. He's Jared Levine. He's, my, he's the boss. Thank God for him. But sometimes when the lawyers start to get back and forth against each other, it becomes a longer process than it has to be sometimes. So basically, we ironed it out in a parking lot of a, of a supermarket. And I was on the phone. And I was like, this is the number I'm happy with. Forget anything that is going on right now. Here's the number that I can live with comfortably. Excuse me. And they, they were in. And we made a deal to write it. I wrote My Man is a Loser, and they loved the script. And then they said, we got to find a director. And that's when I jumped in and said, having never directed in my life, I promise you I'm the guy to direct this. And what inside of you made you do that? Yo, Jordy, you know what it was? I've been on set, I was on set of Entourage 50 times watching directors. My boy Kevin Connolly, I've shadowed him before on commercials and, and, and on his movies. So Nick Cassavetes is a friend. I've watched Nick. You know, I, I, Toby McGuire, I'm just name dropping, but I've been on sets with these guys. I've watched directors work and I took notes many times. And I always thought I could direct. And I heard stories and I read stories. You know me, I, you know, I read up on every director and, you know, I read there's a book from Playboy from 20 years ago about every director, you know, interviewing every single great director. And I read a lot of their stories about doing it the first time. And I, you know, Woody Allen's a hero of mine in the film world and Woody Allen came from stand-up comedy. So I just said, listen, I wrote it. I know the rhythm. I know the beats. I know the jokes. I know the ins and the outs of the scenes. Let me direct this. Because if you get somebody that doesn't understand comedy and rhythm, you're going you're gonna to ruin the movie. You, like, Because you know how crazy I am. That to me, a one second beat on a comedy beat, if you're off, you, you fucked up the joke and you fucked up the scene. 
It all matters. That's my whole, that's the motto that we live by. Everything matters. Everything. Comedy is so much about the pacing. And, you know, sometimes it's about something that a character says or a look and a feel. And, I mean, comedy is poetry. It is. Absolutely. Comedy's poetry. No doubt. And people think it just happens. They think that, you know, it's just funny people put them together and funny things happen, that could end up being just a complete disaster. Yo, I hate when people belittle comedy. It's like, I'm going to, how about this? How about, I'll go on a limb. Any motherfucker could do drama. Anybody can cry on cue. Anybody. But guess what people cannot do? Comedy. There are very few funny people. And I can give you, I'll give you an example after we go through the My Man is a Loser thing because I wrote that movie Grounded starring Aaron Paul and Jeff Daniels that'll come out. And Aaron Paul is a dope-ass dramatic actor who goes deep every time and does not fuck around. But guess what he cannot do? And these are from, these are his words. He cannot do comedy. He doesn't do it. He told me straight up, dude, I don't do comedy. I don't, deli- I don't, it's not in me. And if, and you can look at, you know, look at dude, look at Robin Williams, greatest comedian, greatest, arguably greatest comedy, comedic actor in the game. It is at the height of his game. Dramatic beyond. You know what I mean? So if you could do comedy, you could do drama, but it doesn't go the other way. Just because you could do drama, you usually can't do comedy. So all props to comedy. So I decided I could direct this movie. And obviously they made a few phone calls and they called Doug and they, you know, they said to Doug, you know, listen, this is crazy. We're spending $5 million here. Can Mike direct this thing? And God bless Doug, man. He didn't skip a beat. (laughs) And I, I almost think he even said something like, listen, bro, you get a great cast. You got a great script. A monkey could direct this. <laughs> of course, that's not true. But I think, honestly, that's, that's, that's uh, knowing Doug, I think that is probably what he said. But Doug said Mike could definitely direct it, and boom, called back the lawyer, said, let's make a directing deal. Next thing I knew, boom, I was playing basketball with you, and I'm like, Jordy, this sounds really crazy, but I think I have $5 million in a budget, and I think that I'm going to be directing a movie in New York. And if I do, I think I want you to come work with us on the movie. But it sounds too crazy to really be true yet. So just give me like another week. And I think that the money's being wired into my account. And I really do think I'm making a movie. And next thing I know, it is yes, Mike. Yes, yes. And directing deal's done. Writing deal is done. Script is in place. Casting director is hired out of New York, and I'm ready to cast my movie. It really was, not, no joke, you were not, uh, I mean, you did say, I think I'm making a movie. Because it was, like, too good to be true. I didn't buy that, to be honest. I'm Because, and I know, I mean, you're a genuine guy. You were saying, and this, people, this was on the basketball court. We're warming up before basketball. And you're like, I'm like, hey, Mike, how's it going? Like, I think I'm directing a movie. Yeah. I, I, th- I think I'm going to New York and I'm directing a movie. And just like you jumping in and saying, let me direct, I saw that as an opportunity for movie, comedy, Mike, New York. Mike, that's what I do. I'm yeah. in film. Mike and I had never worked together. I mean, I thank you so much for the opportunity because you only knew me based on my 
basketball skills. Yeah, which are solid. So how bad can you be on the movie? <laughs> how bad can you be on the set? If you can run the point, I'm bringing you in. And that's exactly what happened. And I, I for not one second, thought that this wasn't going to happen. And I remember it like it was yesterday because you said, I'm going to send you the script and I want you to read it. I read it as soon as I got home from basketball. I really enjoyed it. And then I started bombarding you with Facebook messages. Because <laughs> this yeah. is all within like a three hour span. This all happened. He told me about the movie, he sent the script. And and I was thinking, summer, New York City, movie, comedy. And okay, hopefully the script is good. And it was. The script, the script equaled what the movie is and I encourage anyone out there if you haven't seen it to go see My Man is a Loser it's on demand it's on DVD it can be found and it really is terrific and I'm not just saying that because I worked on it it's I love comedy I love comedy that's comedy film is that's why I moved to Los Angeles yeah to be in comedic film and I, the script was funny it was human the characters really like they they jumped off the page and do you remember what you said to me on the basketball court you're like oh you worked in new york i need some help with this because they want to turn some interiors to exteriors yeah. and that you know interior coffee shop and they want to put exterior on a river walk and i'm thinking there's I, no river walks in New York City. Yeah, there's only the Hudson River. <laughs> You're talking about, oh, well, I need uh, outdoor basketball courts. I need a place for ice skating uh, ice skating or hockey rinks. And I was just like, Mike, I'm your guy. And boom, next thing I know, I'm getting a phone call from the producer who's just grilling me, Vince Maggio, grilling me, saying, who are you? What are you doing? You, you know, Mike wants you to come on the movie. And I told him about my background, I, you know, and I told him I was from New York. And by the way, I was the only person on that film who wasn't a New York-based person. I was the only, only person- L.A., right, coming out of L.A. Coming out of L.A. who wasn't an actor. So, I mean, I thank you for giving me that opportunity. Yo, you came through strong, Jordy. You were my second pair of eyes, and there were, and I needed them. There were things I wasn't seeing all the time. Totally. Let me ask you a question, though. Do you remember, because I know we're going to get into the movie, but I really want people to appreciate the how the whole structure went down. Do you remember the, because I know you were there in New York and I want you to talk to, about the casting and whatnot, but something, if you can bring up the the week prior to shooting when we were, you know, we all got on a bus. Yes, I remember going, the bus. And we're going around New York City and we're, and we're, we're location, location scouting. scouting yeah. yeah and, we're, and we're going to all these houses in Westchester with the entire crew and everybody's like taking notes and doing all these things. People, filmmaking is a process, but independent filmmaking is either, gangster. It's, it's so gangster. So let's just take it from the top. Yeah, it's so gangster. Yeah, literally. Well, Jordy, first of all, I remember saying to you, yo, we're looking to get some exteriors. I need some basketball, outdoor basketball spots. There's a, I got a scene of basketball. Found out later, Stamos couldn't play basketball. I had to change it to hockey. Found out he couldn't play hockey. Had to change it to floor hockey. Found out he couldn't hold a stick. Had to put him on the bench and make his dialogue. 
it was unbelievable. But within 10 minutes, you sent me like 19 photos of parks around Brooklyn and New York. And all of a sudden, I'm like, we were location scouting before we location scouted. Yeah. That's 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 how Jordy is. Like, you tell Jordy, yo, I need some basketball in New York. And next thing you know, you got 13 pictures to look at. And there's some kind of Dr. J interview in the middle of it all. <laughs> it, it was really it was really unbelievable. So, But we were hyper prepared. But even as prepared as we were to go make this movie there is no preparation that can prepare you for what you're about to get into. So having never directed a movie, and by the way, having the producer, Vince Maggio, who was the line producer on the movie, who's kind of got a boss attitude anyway, and he's done 50 movies in New York, so he's already on some ego shit. He's kind of checking me on the phone for like two weeks before I ever met him. You know, so two weeks before I meet him, I'm kind of getting like, he's he's hitting me with like, you know, I don't know if you could have an assistant and I don't know if you're going to get this and we don't know. I'm thinking, who is this motherfucker that's just talking down to me before I get to make my movie? I can't wait to meet this dude. Because, you know, look it, it is what it is. At the end of the day, I'm, I'm more human than I am a director. You know what I mean? I go man first, then art second. So I'm thinking, who is this dude that is making my life difficult before I even get there? And then I get to New York, and I hear that voice that's been pestering me for a month on the phone. I hear it down the hall, and I see my name, Mike Young, director, on a, on a door. And it's this office I've never, obviously never been to, and I'm going in for the first time. I hear this voice, and I just, you know me, I'm, I'll break it down with, I'll break it with comedy. I'm going to break the ice. And I'm just like, where is Vince Maggio? I need, where is this guy? And I go in and his cherubic chubby ass has his feet up on the table and he's just cross-legged, both feet up there like he does this every day, every minute. And I'm like, what up, bro? What's up? Am I getting my guy? Am I, are we going to be able to hire my guy Jordan out here? Am I going to be able to see these locations? What's happening? And of course, we broke the ice and became best buddies within 20 hours of location scouting. And he was not as intimidating as he put, pretended to be. <clears throat> but that, that, was, that was day one. That was day one. And then you just, when you start making an independent film, you just get thrown into a tornado. And we just hopped in a white van and we started location scouting. But let's take it back to the casting process for a sec because it was the script that I got to Stamos and Rappaport and Callan in three different ways that show you you can do fucking anything and everyone you think is gettable or reachable is reachable. So there's no rules in this bullshit. No rules. None. <clears throat> so I worked with Sagan on the road, open for Bob for years, great friend, great dude, love him. And I wrote the script and I said, dude, this is going to sound crazy, but I think Stamos, your boy Stamos is perfect to play this role. Would you mind getting him this script? And if he loves it, we'll make him an offer. I just threw that out there. And he's like, come on, you can't, you know, it's, this is a business. You can't really just say you're going to make it. I'm going to make him an offer. If he likes this, because he's the perfect dude. I met James Marsden. I met a bunch of dudes that were like leading men who had, you know, personality and could play single swagger. But Stamos was the fucking dude. And long story short, I send the script to Stamos. He calls Saget. I love this fucking character. I love this voice. Who is this dude, Mike Young? Can I meet him? 
So we set up a meeting and I go have lunch with John Stamos. I'll never forget at the newsroom cafe on Robertson. You know, I'm I dress how I dress. I if you see me, I just straight up look like I'm ready to go play softball at any moment. I always <laughs> have a baseball hat and gym shoes on and I'm just ready to go. I dress, you know, to play ball or run from something, whatever it is. So here comes Stamos in the restaurant. Fucking 1950 shades on, 2014 hairstyle, tan Greek god walking in. You know what I mean? It's like, and when Stamos walks into a restaurant, it's literally like, you know what I mean? Record scratch. Record scratch. Waitresses get all, they get all fucked up in the head. You know what I mean? They, no one knows how to act. He's, he's a star. Dude's a star. He's been a star for 30 years. You know what I mean? He comes in, shirt tucked in, half corny, and he comes right to the table where I'm sitting. I'm waiting for him. I'm by myself. I got a coffee. And here he comes, sunglasses on, and he does the fucking smooth-ass Stamos, lift the sunglasses, put them on the perched-up gel head. And he puts them on, he sits down, and he's like, what the fuck, bro? I love this. I love your writing. I was like, thanks, man. Great to meet you. And we start talking, and immediately Stamos goes into, like, single Stamos mode because the character he was playing was the most single dude in the game, and he starts telling me stories. <laughs> and I'm thinking I got fucking stories. You know what I mean? Like, yo, I'm not, I'm not living a vanilla life. You know what I mean? I've lived a life in the single world, but this motherfucker, his whole philosophy's jacked up. You know what I mean? Like his whole single philosophy is way different. He's like, listen, man, in a relationship, I always got to get the threesome out of the way just so I know where I stand. I'm like, dude, it's like you're speaking Chinese to me. I don't even know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> like that's some shit I never even heard before. That's like some Keith Richards shit, you know? That's rock star. That's rock star shit. And he's on some rock star shit. So I actually had to bring him a little more down to earth for this character, whose name was Mike, by the way in the movie and uh so i had to just get stamos down to earth away from rock star shit that'll be the next movie he could play that he could play that guy but we sit down for lunch we kick it for an hour stories back and forth back and forth and he's just straight up like yo if you'll have me in the movie i'm in and that's how that went down was he of the three <clears throat> what number was he of locked he was the first one to say he's locked, and he was the last one to get locked. Because once the negotiation started, then business gets into this motherfucker, and it's like, you know, now managers are involved, and agents are involved, and scheduling is involved, because Stamos had a play to do uh, that he had signed up for that was coming after the movie, but time was, you know, of the essence. So there was a moment where his schedule, and, you know, he played me a little bit. He, you know, he played the, you know, I don't know, it looks like I can't do the movie, man. You know, so, he, so that I would go back to the producers and be like, you have to lock his deal in now. So I kind of got played in the middle, which I don't like because I'm not a fucking agent or a manager. That's not what I do, even though I was every, I felt like I was everybody's manager on this movie. <laughs> because I, was, I became friends with Stamos, Rappaport, and Callen. Next thing I know, I'm calling the producers going, you got to give this guy a better deal. <laughs> you know what I mean? So now I'm doing everyone's deal. So Stamos was the first verbal lock. He was the first one to say, I'm in this movie, Mike. I'm down. So, of course, Stamos is, he takes his work seriously. So when he says he, he's in, now he wants to go over the motherfucking script all the time. And when I'm getting ready to direct the movie, I'm very, very busy. And I couldn't just come to his house 
you know, at seven o'clock at night and watch him eat a no carb diet and go over this fucking script all the time. Does he live in the hills? He lives in the hills and he lives, you know, he lives like in a draconian mansion. You know what I mean? Like you go in there and there's a fucking Disneyland sign. And- the houses there are so beautiful, but the thing is that if you live up there, you only you stay inv- up there. Yeah, you only invite people up to your house. He's not allowed to come out of his own house. I don't like, I would never live up there. I never. That's not my style. I need space. You go up in these dudes' houses, it's like, yo, small road, make a right on an even smaller road. You got to take a three-wheeler to get up to the door because a car can't fit. Fuck that Hollywood Hills shit. What did you say about a Disneyland sign? He's got like, you know, he loves Disneyland. So you go up to Stamos's and he's got like the D from Disney when you walk in. All of a sudden, (laughs) shit is fantasy land. So Stamos is the first one to verbally sign on. So he's locked. They do his deal. Stamos is locked. I'm like, man, this is getting exciting. I'm doing a movie with Stamos and... You know, I kind of have known who the dude was for basically my whole life. <clears throat> Next guy I write, I'm a huge fan and now a good friend of Michael Rappaport. So I played basketball with Rappaport years ago. So I assume that he knew me or like at least like remembered me, you know. So I'm trying to get through like Stamos and Rappaport have the same manager. So I call the manager. I said, yo. Do me a favor, Michael Rappaport is perfect to play the role of Marty, man. Can you get him the script? Just tell him it's from Mike Young. Dude, he played basketball with seven years ago. We were on the same team for a minute. His manager hits me back, and he's like, he doesn't remember you, but he's going to read the script. (laughs) I'm like, well, okay. I'm a little bummed out because I thought I was probably, you know, top three best ball players on that squad. How the fuck are you not going to remember me? So he reads the script. He digs the script. Now I'm about to have lunch with Michael Rappaport. So at the time, he's going through like a healthy cleanse or some shit. So he's like, yo, can you meet me at the juice bar? Because he's cleansing. (laughs) So I go meet Rappaport. He sees me. He recognizes me. He's like, yo, everyone's saying that guy, you got to meet with Mike Young. You got to meet Mike Young. And he's like, I remember he said to me, he goes, you ain't fucking Martin Scorsese. What the fuck do I got to meet with you for? And I'm like, yo, you're just perfect for this role, bro. I'm telling you, if you want it, you got it. You don't have to. I'm not auditioning Michael Rappaport. I'm not. Not today. I'm not. I'm doing an independent movie. He's perfect for the role. I'm not going through the process. If I get him, I feel lucky. I've been a fan. I know he'll deliver comedy to a high level. You're in if you want the role. He goes, by the end of the juice cleanse day, and he had, by the way, the next day I started a juice cleanse. He had me all <laughs> geeked up on the fucking cleanse. I felt nauseous for 10 days. Fuck that juice cleanse shit. But he verbally committed to me at the juice bar. So he was in. So now I got my two leads out of three. So I got Stamos and Rappaport locked to play two of three leads. So now I got to find another funny-ass dude to play the third lead. And I'm on the road doing comedy in Miami. This is no joke. And I mean, these guys, you're talking about American icons. Well, slow down with Callan as an icon. Well, I'm, well, yeah. I'm saying you we love lo- Callan, you, but he well, ain't getting icon yet. Well, you're talking. Well, I'm saying you locked Rappaport. I locked Rappaport. And Stamos. Those are the American icons. Fuck yeah, fuck yeah. Well, Callan's not even American. He doesn't know what he is. Callan's out of his fucking mind. Yeah, he, he, no one knows what Callan is. I think he's a spy playing an actor. <laughs> <clears throat> so, those two are locked. Now I gotta pat myself on the back for a quick second because. Yo, I locked them at lunches, you know what I mean? And the favorite th- my favorite thing of the whole thing is 
They like the material. That's all I give a fuck about. Do you like the script? Because neither of these dudes, Stamos doesn't need the fucking money that he's going to make on an independent film. Rappaport didn't need the money he was going to make on an independent film. So they dug the material they were in. So now I'm in Miami doing comedy at the Improv and I'm middling for Brian Callen. I'm basically co-headlining with him because I'm doing a half hour or 40 minutes. He's doing 45 minutes. You know what I mean? So I'm working with Callen and we're kicking it and we're talking and his fucking voice and his attitude and his style is just ringing true to this character. And I'm just thinking, what the fuck was this character's name in the movie? Paul. Paul. And so his voice for Paul is just beaming. It's just in my fucking ear. So I say to Callan in the green room, just like I said to you on the basketball court, Bri, this is going to sound crazy, but I think I'm directing a movie and you might be per. Oh, come on, you Mike. Listen, you got money? Like everyone says they're directing a movie. Like, you are you really doing I said, listen, Bri, for what it's worth, bro, we're about to go into pre-production. I'm making a movie. I want you to read this script tonight in your hotel room, and tomorrow I want you to tell me what you think for the, for the role of Paul. He comes to the coffee shop in the morning. He's like, dude, what the fuck? This is like a real movie. I'm in. I, I'm definitely in. If you're, you just let me know. All right, Bri, who's your manager? Whoever his manager was, I called, I called the producers. I said, you know what? Brian Callen's fucking perfect for this. He's perfect. And Callan's like, I'll go on tape. I'll do this. I'll do this. I'm like, I went off pure gut instinct on the for the first for the three leads of this movie. And within a month time, I had my three leads. Brian Callan, John Stamos, Michael Rappaport playing three best friends. And it was fucking game on. And uh for these three characters, you've got Mike Stamos, you've got Marty. Rappaport, and you've got Paul as Callan. What about those three characters and the connections of those three people? What was it like? Chemistry. It was. It was. Well, first of all, it's the there. What do you mean? What was it like? Like, Why were those those three dudes? Why were those three guys destined to play those characters? Because I think the casting is incredible for those characters. Yeah. It was it was their voices. It was Rappaport's natural, his natural comedic style lent itself to Marty, and it was like from Marty's voice, I could just tell from hanging out with Rappaport in ten minutes, he will nail this role, and I'll even go back in and I'll tweak the character towards something natural for Rappaport. So that was an easy sell. Like that was, I saw him as the guy when I met him and I made him the guy even more after locking him. Stamos, you sit with him for 10 minutes at lunch and you go, there is nobody better to be single with swagger than this dude. Even though he never grew up playing sports, I like my guy, you know, I like my, I like my men. I like my <laughs> single dudes, you know, Stamos, he'll be the first one to tell you. You know, he grew up tap dancing, playing fucking guitar, and singing with the Beach Boys. You know, he wasn't playing ball, which is fine. But Stamos, after 10 minutes, I said, this is the single voice. And he, Rappaport, I wrote towards him. Stamos came to the role, though. He actually, he he adapted himself to the material. So he had to come up to play Mike. You know what I mean? I didn't have to rewrite for Stamos at all. I just wrote my voice, and he came to play that. He came to play me, basically, a version of me. 
Um, Callan is one of the funniest motherfuckers you ever want to meet in regular life. He's got a distinct comedy style. Obviously, anyone that's heard his podcast knows what his style is. The kid. Yeah. What's it called? The kid? It's Fighter and the Kid, and he calls himself The Kid. Yeah, he calls himself The Kid. Callan is an interesting character, man. In comedy, you meet so many interesting characters because people have backgrounds, and you never find out about their backgrounds till later. But, like, if you meet Callan at the comedy store and you're hanging out, you're like, this dude was a fucking maniac in high school. He's the funniest guy. He's, like, your funniest friend in school. But then you dig deeper and you go, wait a minute. His, like, dad's, like, a super successful guy, and he's got, like, a military background. and You know, he's like, I don't know, man. People shock me all the time. But... Callan has such a funny way about him that I took his natural voice and I didn't have to do much rewriting on the character of Paul, but I took what was natural for Callan and such as some of his, the minutia of his comedy style and I just implemented it into the character and that was it. And they, the three of them, cause I brought them together, the three of them just got along great and it was a smooth it was like a perfectly casted piece for the movie. Now, I don't fuck with the marketing world, and I don't fuck with the foreign sales of a movie. So when you come to me and you go, John Stamos doesn't really mean anything in Argentina, you know, I don't give a fuck about that. that go, I don't give a fuck. The game needs to change, and the way like movies are sold and marketed, like, I feel blessed. Lionsgate, a major company, public company, huge distribution company, bought the movie and put it out. But if, you know, if it was up to me, you go and you just, you push the shit out of this movie because it's, I think it's that good. You know, like push the fucking movie. Don't, I don't want to hear your analytics about what celebrities are worth what in what markets. That's all dick suck. So, sorry for saying that. I don't even, I don't even know what that means. (laughs) But it gets me upset because I want to be involved in every aspect of the movie. You know what I mean? Call me and show me the poster. I know I don't have any pull, even though I wrote and directed it. I want to see the poster. I want to know what your log line, Mr. Fucking Mr. Lionsgate, what's your log line going to be for this movie? You know, I wrote it. Let me fucking give you the log line. That's how I feel. Seriously. You know, so um, the three of them were perfect and the cast was set. And then the real, a lot of the fun began when I was casting the rest of the people around them in New York. And I got to say, man, going to New York, and we hired Pat McCorkle, who's a legendary old school casting director. And I was most surprised that every single person that came through the room reading in New York was good. They were just good. Like... L.A., yeah, there's a lot of great actors out here, no doubt. But L.A. is also peppered with some bullshit because you got every motherfucker, every model chick wants to be an actor. Every don't take acting is not to be taken lightly. It isn't. It's a fucking art, and you can say what the fuck you want about people get discovered at the supermarket. Well, guess what? Bullshit. If you got discovered, it's like that Chris Rock joke: grand opening, grand closing. Your shit ain't gonna last. These dudes who really are good at acting and who take the shit seriously as an art and as a craft, much respect because these are the motherfuckers that paint the picture for your movie or for your play or for your TV show. So I don't hate them at all, you know? And when I was in New York, I was like, I could not believe how talented everybody coming through the door was. But it was a super cool lesson in don't be afraid to hire someone that's an unknown that 
just knocks it out of the park. And I had written the wives of the movie with specific voices, and I wanted to make sure they didn't come off as like bitchy women that you always see in every movie or complaining women. I wanted their rebuttals to their husbands to kind of always be firm and like, you know, let them condescend to the husband in a funny way. And I cast two women who I'd never heard of, but who were working all the time in off-Broadway stuff and in commercial stuff and, you know, in did a lot of theater and a couple TV shows, but mostly skilled theater actresses in Kathy Cyril to play Marty's wife and Heidi Armbruster to play Callan's wife. And when they walked in the room, they knocked it out of the park. And I remember looking at the casting director after Kathy walked in, who she was so damn funny. I just looked at the dude and I said, who the fuck is that? He's like, you know, these guys are cocky in New York, you know, the casting director, because they cast quality shit all the time. So they looked at me like, oh, yeah, that's Kathy Cyril. She's going to be a star. You, you blah, blah, blah. I was like, I don't need to see anybody else. Like when they when it hits you, it just hits you. And those women knocked it out of the park. So, boom, I had my men cast. I had my women cast and it was game on. And uh, how did Tika Sumter come into play? Tika Sumter walked in the room and she was going to play Stamos's love interest. And we were auditioning girls and every beautiful quality actress in New York came in. And Tika Sumter walked in in a rock and roll t-shirt with the sleeves cut off, sat down in front of me, did a great audition. And I was like, I can't take my eyes off this girl. Who the fuck is this? I was like, yo, this girl's fine as a motherfucker. Who is this? Because I don't watch TV like that. I can only, you know, people to this day are like, when you go into a pitch meeting, have some actors. I can only name seven actors. But Tika Sumter walked in, knocked it out of the park, and she was so damn fine that I just, I was like, yo, we've, these other girls better read great. <clears throat> so she, she read the, she, and she loved that she, you know, complimented the script. She came in, she knocked it out of the park, and I hired her. And the beauty of the interracial relationship in that movie, and I don't know if people even take note on this ship. But being from Detroit, I, you know, I grew up in a very mixed environment, black, white, Arab, punk, rock, rock, you know, just a, I went to public school. So we didn't have any kind of racism when it came to dating, sleeping around, you know what I mean? There was no shit like that. So I always like the fact that you can have a couple that's one, you know, black and white, and that's not their problem. When they're going to have problems, it ain't going to be a race problem. Their problems are going to be couple problems. So I wanted this to be that. I wanted them to be a couple that was in love and that was falling in love. And whatever issues they were going to have, it wasn't going to come from race. So Tika fit the bill perfectly. And she did a great job. She really did. She came strong. We had some fucking problems. You know, we had some issues, but they weren't real issues. And look, I can sit back and go as a first-time director on a movie it's okay. You don't have to respect me big time day one. I know you all worked with, you know, I mean, look at Rappaport. He's worked with Woody Allen multiple times, Scorsese, Oliver Stone. I mean, he's worked with everybody. I don't think he's been in a Scorsese yet, Rappaport. Scorsese called him while we were working personally. 
and made like some kind of comment like Michael I want you for this one role man but you I remember Rappaport said the words to, he was like you're too intrinsically sweet that's what he said <laughs> I don't even know if that is intrinsically sweet a thing but he's on he's on Scorsese's radar let's put it that way but yeah you're probably right maybe he didn't do a Scorsese I just threw that out there I mean he has been with you know, the best yeah unbelievable talents and he and he goes head to head with all of them so my point is I get it if you're a little skeptical working with a first time director but my dudes were all respectful on set everybody was I had a couple moments where I could tell Tika was like who is Mike Young you know what I mean like <laughs> I'm not really going to you know okay and we had a you know when you're when you're trying to articulate what you need in a scene that was where I found I needed the most work for myself because I was now speaking a new language. I knew the language of writing and I knew the language of storytelling, but I wasn't really skilled yet on how to articulate what I needed. And you know me, I fucking read every book before I started the movie. I'm reading like directing actors 101, how to use verbs instead of... And at the end of the day, I was like, fuck all this verb shit. I'm just going to give you how I think the scene should be played. I'm going to act it out for you. If you want to imitate me, great. If not, you know the direction I'm talking about. So, And uh, <clears throat> how did you find the evolution as a director, you know, communicating with actors and also communicating with uh, the crew? Like, where were you at the start of the process, even before we were started filming the movie and then throughout the process? It was a brand new language to learn top to bottom. So even working with Harlan, my DP, I didn't know what change a lens meant. <laughs> on day two, I said, yo, I need you to zoom in on her face. <laughs> He's like, this camera costs $400,000, bro. We don't zoom anymore. We change lenses and we get different looks. So I didn't even know what changing a lens meant. So I literally, and there is no better school than just doing it. So I would say if anyone is thinking about making a movie, take your fucking little ass 5D camera and go shoot something and you'll be that much ahead of the game. Take your phone. Take your phone and go edit it yourself. You can literally, it doesn't cost a single penny to write dope shit. It doesn't cost a penny to put your idea down on camera. So everyone's got like these, what it is is it's a subconscious fear that people have. People just have a fear of doing shit because they're afraid people won't like it, which I get. That's a normal fear to have. But break through it and go back to when you were 10 years old and you wanted to make movies and you did it with a bullshit camera. That's all this is at a high level. So <clears throat> working with the crew, I would say you go into it. I was in the zone, bro. It's a zone that you go in, but you're forced into the zone because starting day one, you have everybody from your art director to your grip to your lighting guys to your DP. They are coming at you nonstop. So my art director is like, do you want a pink picture in the background? What color should the cups be? What color is this? How do you see this? How do you like the way the table's set up? And all of a sudden, you just have to have answers. And you just have to take a deep breath and check your gut and do not get stressed out even though it's becomes it is a stressful heavy thing and the stress will take itself out however it does like if you see pictures of me from the set of my man is a loser i look homeless and i look skinny 
and I look unhealthy and I got dandruff on my eyebrows that's falling off at all times. So everyone's like, you're so cool, man. You're so easy going. Well, yeah, I'm dying on the fucking inside. Okay. So let's just, <laughs> let's just know that. Oh, that one when we shot at uh Gotham comedy club and we come out and it's raining and you asked for a trash bag. <laughs> for your st- just to wear <laughs> and I got that picture and there's a picture of me with all my shit I'm in a trash bag and it's just a metaphor for what you go through directing an independent and I looked like a homeless tr- I looked like a homeless person with a smile on his face I was like I had my trash bag on to protect the rain and I had my shit in another trash bag over my shoulder <laughs> I was trash bag Mike that day so, but anyway, you get thrown in to making the movie, you start to speak the language accidentally if you're not from film school, which I was not from. So I just dove in feet first, head first, and I fucking just did it. And I always kept my focus on the scenes. Like, let's just make sure every scene is dope. So the night before, I always knew what I was doing the next day. And yes, I was an annoying writer because I would rewrite shit all the time, but I don't give a fuck because, you know, you read about the history of movie making and you read about all your favorite screenwriters. They all did this. And it's like, you see actors that can do certain things. Why wouldn't you try to write the best shit for them? And if I didn't write it five days ago and I know I got them on set tomorrow, I'm going to try to make it great. So I'm sorry that I changed the script 81 times. It came to a point where like the, my script supervisor, she was like, yo, we don't even have any more colors of script (laughs) to do. Like you've already gone through goldenrod 11. You know what I mean? It goes like white, green, pink, red, goldenrod, goldenrod, red, green. I was like, yo, we ran out of colors for you. I was like, well, then just fucking, I'm going to print my shit on a notepad and give it to the actors. Because you guys figure it out and follow it. I just want to make sure the shit is dope. Yeah, the only thing that could be a mistake is not getting it on camera. Exactly. I mean, but it is tough sometimes for the actors to come in. And of they, course. They didn't have their the specific sides and such. But, I mean, it's a testament to how good these actors were in the roles that they were playing, that they inspired you to create more for them. Absolutely. And I was not hesitant to write you know, more stuff for them. And, you know, look, man, there's a hundred people, a hundred, we had a crew of like 120 people for this movie. And I'm not fucking around when I say everybody matters, like every fucking thing matters. It is like this crazy entity where if one person slips up, it has a crazy domino effect around the entire situation. So, and I mean that because... If I get my script in late and my script supervisor doesn't get the exact page with the exact sentence that was changed, then the actor didn't get his shit. And if he didn't get his line, then he's not making sense with the other actor. And it shows up, man. And so I would say the number one thing to live by is that everything matters. And if you live by that, yeah, you're going to be exhausted. You're going to be drained like a motherfucker. But you're going to be able to say at the end of the day, you left it all on the field. You gave it your best shot. Cause that's, I I can't, that's, that's all I want to do. Like whatever I'm trying to do. And I'm, I got a lot, I got a lot to learn, a lot to learn. 
but I like to give it my best shot at the end of the day. Go, yo, I, I, I gave it all. Now it's in every, now it's it's out of my hands. It's out of my hands. And so with the with with my man as a loser, I gave it my all. And even when you're the writer and the director, unless you're Martin Scorsese, you still don't get the last cut of your movie. So there will always, you know, then you will fight with your producers, the finance guys who get last, last, last say. So even when the movie was done and it was in the can and I edited, you know, what I thought was just a you know, nice, paced out, beautiful thing. Now I got to deal with the money guys coming in and going, you know, this is too, this scene's too long and this needs to be chopped up. And what the fuck song is this? You know, so you just have to be flexible you got to just plead your case and you hope that you get something that strikes a chord. And with my man as a loser, I was lucky enough to make my first independent movie and Lionsgate came and they bought it and they put it out. I have a question. And no, this is coming from me who was there all the time, but there were times that no one could be there except the director and the person that he's talking to one on one. Are there any moments, it could be with anyone who is in the cast or in the crew, that it was like, can I talk to you for a second? Are there any, like, standout moments that, like, you know, that you won't even be thinking about it during your day-to-day that kind of pop up into your head, You're like that make you laugh or make you be like, oh, I maybe I should have done that differently or something? I just, I, I have to ask. Yeah, Stamos, that motherfucker, man, he pulled me aside for a couple private sit-downs. You know, so Stamos pulled me aside and he would be like, listen, on page 17, it says blah, 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 blah. Does that make sense on page 49? Now, when we come back to 49, now, when I deliver this, would a guy say this to a woman? Are you sure a guy would say this to a girl in this specific moment? And I would say to Stamos, John, I love you, buddy, but you've been famous for 30 years. You don't know what a normal human being says to a girl in a situation. (laughs) I promise you. On a street level, this is what a dude says to a girl when the shit is going down, okay? So don't argue with me about this, okay? Please. And he would test me. He put me to the test, man. And I was, there were a couple moments where I said to him, why the fuck are we having this talk? Why are we arguing right now? What are we, what are we talking about? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I've had to say things to girls to get them to go to dinner with me that you don't have to say. All you have to do is take your sunglasses off your eyes, put them on your head, and three girls want to go to dinner, dinner with you. I know what the f- I know what the streets are saying. <laughs> all right, I'm in the trenches, bro. You're not in the trenches. So he pulled me aside multiple times. Uh, Rappaport never pulled me aside or never had any like real contentious moments. But I knew when he was getting stressed out because. You know, nobody told me that while you're shooting a movie, you can just say, hold, give me that line again. Moving on. I never held anybody. <laughs> so I'm burning film. I'm burning shit left and right. I'm just not. I'm, I'm saying cut. I'm taking way more time than I need to. I didn't learn that till my second movie <laughs> about holding. I don't know why you, no one ever fucking just said to me, Mike, you know, you can hold them and have them deliver it. In my mind, I'm like, oh, if I hold them, then the cameras will get all fucked up and the whole everyone will panic. <laughs> I, I didn't have command like that. I remember there was only one time that I remember Rappaport getting uh, a little testy. And that, that it was a tough day. We were filming uh, upstate. It was uh, 
it was just it was one of those spots where we used the location uh, for multiple scenes, and it was pouring rain outside. Um, and it was the scene uh, when uh, Marty go he surprises his wife at the bar. Yep, so, and yep. it's like the mob wives, and you know the producers are saying like, "Oh, you can't talk about mob wives because we don't have clearance for that." All that bullshit, and. You know, we kept going, and this was the the last scene of the day, and we had done so many, we shot so many scenes at that bar, and that's something else about filmmaking is that locations are used for multiple setups. Absolutely. I mean, that same restaurant was used for the uh, the Callan scene where he's like, uh, oh, golf? Uh, I, I suck at golf. That, and yep. also that was used for the scene with, um, you know, when it's it's Marty, Paul, and their wives, and they're all together, and it's like, oh, the, the, my, hus- my husband will have a juice box, and yeah. they're, they're, they're doing the fake drinks. That was all at the same location. Yep. We just dressed it differently. So it's the end of the day, and, and Rapport was not pleased at that point. Yeah, no, I remember him saying things like, you know, Let's get this shit done. What the fuck is going on? Yo, Maggio, he was calling, he'd call Vince out before he would call me out. But uh, yeah, he, there were a couple moments. When he, I hired Jordan to play the DJ. So Jordy played the DJ of the nightclub. Oh, this was a moment that Stamos did not like. No, I remember. I did not think to myself, I need to hire a SAG actor in a moment of desperation. It just didn't cross my mind at the moment because I was just trying to, we lost an actor. We were supposed to get this DJ, famous DJ, like DJ Vike, I don't know, some big DJ, Tiesto, one of these beasts was going to come play a DJ in the movie, and he backed out last minute, and he had to go to Russia for a shot. I don't know what the fuck happened. Anyway, I needed a DJ, and he didn't have a lot of lines. I hired Jordy, and Jordy, Jordy doesn't have a SAG card. Jordy isn't thinking about acting. Jordy's running around the set trying to find my computer bag. <laughs> and I'm like, yo, bro, you're about to be in a scene with Michael Rappaport. And I hired Jordy, and he had to do all the paperwork and get his shit done. And I Stamos pulls me aside. He goes, what the fuck is wrong with you? I go, what are you talking about? He's like, you hire a non-SAG actor when everyone in here is SAG, and all they, their dream is to be an actor, and you put the fucking kid in the, in the scene? And I'm like, oh, boy, I better fucking just get in between <laughs> Jordan and Stamos oh, at this man. point. He was mad dogging me. He, he, he might me still out. not like you. I'm serious. He might not. He chewed me out. I'm in the DJ booth getting chewed out by John Stamos, and I'm just like, am I dreaming? What is happening right now? Yeah, and it was my bad because I didn't think about I wasn't thinking that that's the last thing I'm thinking about in in a moment of crisis. And listen, if somebody would have come to me and said that, that it's a union situation right there, and like I should have taken one of these kids' dreams, I would have thought about it. But I thought it was cool to put you in that DJ spot. You know what I mean? Fuck it, man. If you can't have fun making it, if I can't put my friends and family, I got both my nephews and my brother in the movie. And by the way, they knocked it out of the park. So that that was a day. (laughs) And what, Mike, and just like you, I'm an ultra competitive person. So when Stamos starts chewing into me, I like clicked 
in my brain, like you better knock this out of the park. Now, like I, I went, I, you, I could have been Sean Penn. You wouldn't have known the difference. I was so locked in. I'm like, do my makeup. Do like, like let's let's get me into hair. I need wardrobe. I, I, I never, I didn't know what I was saying, but I was ready to go. And you know what, Mike? I, I, I all you held I, it down. All I cared about was making you proud as the director. It didn't matter what else was going on. And that was a busy day. There was a lot of people. That were involved in that day. You know, rap and Rappaport was yelling. You know, he hit the scene was that he can't take the techno music and he wants to hear some hip hop. So he's <laughs> going off on you. And this was a moment that I got in a fight with the producers because that scene, Rappaport went off for three minutes straight and we cut the scene. They wanted to cut the scene down to like a 30 second piece, piece which I understand. But sometimes I believe you just have to go for entertainment value in certain comedic moments. And I begged them to please let that scene fucking play. Play out because Rappaport was so funny in that scene, and of course I lost that battle. But they took that scene, and it, they only took a couple scenes and <laughs> put like special features out on YouTube along with the trailer. They chose that scene. Yeah, that scene lives on YouTube right now. My acting debut and probably my grand opening, grand closing. I would act in anything else again, but probably only for you. I've. Yeah, I, I, you only do Mike Young films. Only Mike Young films, and and Mike, I'm actually in SAG now because of you. Are you? I got my SAG card because of that film. You're welcome. Thank yous. Yeah, and I yeah. made more money in that one day of, of being the DJ than I did in the entire process as being your assistant. Yeah, because I had a bunch of lines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're double welcome. I double my. I'll get I you in the next one. Yeah, please. I'm not in a stand-up guy, but I, I my man is a loser. Oh, is that funny? <laughs> the only other time I had a meltdown. It wasn't a meltdown, but this is just you know how I am. My nephew, my godson Ian, my brother's kid Ian. I had him set to play a kid in an old folks' home who's performing for the old folks. And I had Ian, who was a singer, and he writes his own stuff, and he was only 13 at the time, but he's a super talented kid. I said, Ian, write your own song, buddy, and sing it to me over the phone, and in two weeks, your role is, you know, you're going to be in the movie. So either I'll write it or you write it. He's like, I go, Uncle Mike, I want to write it. And he wrote his song, and he rehearsed it, and he sang it to me over the phone, and it was good. And it was solid enough to play for him to sing in front of the, in the scene. So... The day comes, my family, my brother, my mom, everybody is out there. They're in New York. Everyone's on set. And Vince comes to me and he's like, yo, I don't think your nephew can be in the movie. We've got a SAG situation. I said, bro, I'll shut the whole movie down. You did. I was standing right there and you did say those words. That's not an exaggeration. I said, I will shut this whole fucking movie down before you don't let my nephew be in this movie. He's been he's been practicing. He's been singing his shit. My nephew, you want you got a problem? Let's. I was ready to fist fight. You were straight you, up. You would have fought. I, ever, in, I yeah. tried to get. I in, almost beat you up. You did. I I tried to get in the middle of it. And you were like, you don't want any part of this. And we're we're in the basement of this giant McMansion in Westchester, where where they have set up all of the tables for lunch and like this was an immaculate house but the basement was unfinished like a dungeon Sean Young had showed up out of nowhere even though she didn't she wasn't filming that day she wasn't on that day and you were on the warpath just ready to rock when and said 
And you did say those words. Yeah, I said, I will shut this down, so you need to figure it out. So then he tried to play boss hog, and he fucking tried to, he had to call a lawyer and have my nephew sing his song over the telephone to make sure the song wasn't a song that's already existed. I was like, motherfucker, are you crazy? It's That's how it is, Mike. I get it, but guess what? I don't give a fuck. I had to submit my DJ resume to be in the movie, I swear. And I, I, I had to tell them that I DJed bar mitzvahs. I made a resume for my DJ experience. Who needed that, though? What does that... SAG. They needed it. <laughs> There's a, I have a DJ resume because of My Man is a Loser. Yo, when my whole family flew out there <laughs> and they were about to not let my nephew play in his scene, it was something to be witnessed. Because I literally was going to rip everyone. I was... And you, motherfucker, you were like, Mike, Vince is Jordy... Not now, buddy. Not now. Don't even. You it don't know like where the, my. You don't know me like this. It was the second to last day of shooting too, which shows you how great the filming went. But <laughs> it was the only moment I was going to go to blows with somebody, and Maggio's a big dude. It had been a tough one, but I was down. I was totally down to go crazy, and it ended up being great because my nephew rocked it. And then my other nephew, and they were so cool, so great having them on set. You know, they were, I remember Cameron, like, went, fell asleep in my director's chair. I had to stand for three hours. But it, <laughs> it was just, it was, a, it was a great first experience. It could not have gone any better. And I learned more than I could have ever hoped to have learned in any film school environment. And I was thrown to the wolves. And... Then, you know, then post-production came and, you know, those are another hundred little mini battles that you have to fight. And that's another language I had to learn. But we got it in the can. We edited the movie. We brought on Troy Takaki, who had done some editing on the movie Hitch. And he brought us home. And boom, I got a phone call one day that said, Lionsgate wants your movie. And I said, <laughs> I'll fucking accept that. But Troy wasn't the original editor. Hell no. The original editor, I won't even say her name because it didn't work out great with her. Oh, she was so nasty. Fucking mean ass. This shit was a nightmare. I and went into the- <laughs> Fucking nightmare. And I'm sitting in this motherfucking editing room with this woman and I'm just thinking, man, why did I hire you? You tricked me in the interview. You tricked me saying that you loved comedy and couldn't wait to do a comedy. And I checked your resume and I, I didn't check it thoroughly enough. And she was friends with one of the, one of the producers. So she kind of got through the cracks and it, it wasn't cool, man. She I, was I, not it wasn't a, cool. Not a nice person at all. I sat in the editing bay once to watch the first 20 minutes of the movie because you wanted some feedback. And she, without hesitation, looking at me when I was start, I I gave you one note, and she was like, "Are we gonna get to work or what?" Yeah, this bitch was miserable in her life, and she was taking it out on you and on me and on the movie, and you know that's if I need to work on an aspect of my personality, which I need a lot of work, but if there's one <laughs> that I can see clear as day, I don't have a great medium tone. I'm either passive, fun, funny Mike, or I'm going to wreck the house and fucking go to jail. So I've been working over the years on my medium voice, which is firm, authoritative, let me get my point across with you firmly and not explode yet, you know, let's be clear. Because I'm not, 
I'm a gorilla. You know what I mean? I'm not like the most clear. I'm not the most clear, articulate director, writer. I, I, I'm from Detroit. I grew up on a scrap truck. You know what I mean? I had, I, I was a fighter as a kid. I'm, I'm a scrappy dude. So, you know, this whole business of talking and getting your point across, it's not the easiest. So with her, I would just clam up and I would just go silent. And that was not the move. That's not the move. So I would, I would also encourage anybody that's getting in this business from on the other end, get your articulation skills down. I don't care if you have to practice reading out loud to yourself in a mirror. Just get it down because clamming up and being quiet and getting angry, it doesn't serve. It didn't serve. And we had to fire her happily. And I tried to fire her two weeks before she got fired, but because she was friends with one of the producers, he wouldn't fire her immediately. And he kept trying to fucking blame me, you know? And listen, this happens all the time where you don't click with an editor. Happened on this, a stand-up guy. Didn't click with the dude. Turns out he was friends with the same producer. So in my mind, our boy was trying to keep his friends working and they weren't the right people for the job, so shame on me for pulling the trigger and hiring them, but lesson learned. If you're doing a comedy, get a comedy editor, someone that understands rhythm, pacing, beats, jokes, you know, and can click with you in the room. Don't get an angry, dramatic person with a lot of problems, you know? Save that for the drama that you do. The foundation at least was set. You know, so it wasn't like a total reworking of the film. It was just making sure that the comedy beats that you needed, that you were getting fought on. Because I remember getting those phone calls from you when you were in post-production from On My Man Is A Loser, you know, being upset about this. And before she was let go and then after she was let go, it was all about the pacing. It was all about the beats. And it's it's great that you were able to have control at the end of the day over, you know, what you wanted and... You know, some battles you win, some battles you lose. Filmmaking, even though it's your name, written and directed by Mike Young, it's it's not that cut and dry. No. It should be written and directed by Mike Young, dot, 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 who had multiple arguments with the producers who financed the movie, and they would debate comedy. Hope you enjoy the film. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because even, you know, but it's, yeah, it's it's my name that's, you know, and... and it just, you know, this could be a smooth transition into my, into the next experience on a stand-up guy. But, you know, those, the battles don't end until the movie is completely done. And, you know, we screened my new movie, A Stand-Up Guy, last night. And the producer, who's also in the movie, Danny A., who's a, my friend of 15 years, who I love... But I've never met anybody who's so okay with just seeing themselves on screen and screening the movie. And like, and I'm nervous with everything. When I, when I show a piece of my work, I'm fucking nervous. And he's like, why are you nervous? How come you're nervous? What are you nervous about? Why would you be nervous? We already sold the movie. I'm like, that's the last thing I'm thinking about. It's like people are watching your work on screen. Why wouldn't I be nervous? So, you know, that's a whole nother animal. But. I remember the uh, the party for My Man is a Loser. Oh, man. What a great party. But I was in such a zone, I didn't even give the good speech that I wanted. I don't even know what I said. 
you know, that's oh, animal comedian. You were up there with the producers and Rappaport was up there too. And it was such a trip for me because the screening was at my college at the school of visual arts uh, theater. So it was like complete full circle for me. How great is that? It was it was awesome. And then we had that dope party. That was <laughs> there was a dope party, but like the wristband, there was wristbands at this party, and like there was one room that was like the VIP room. I couldn't get into the VIP room, even though I could have DJed the party. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's just say what it is. Like my producers of My Man Is a Loser are two dudes who so love the nightlife of New York, and they want to be down with the club world and the club scene. And they made our rap party as if it was a fucking nightclub shit, like at One Oak. You know what I mean? It was like some nightclub in a Russian basement of a intricate secret nightclub, and there was like chicks painted. And oh, that it, was it, the rap. That was the rap party. That's the rap party. And then there was the premiere party. The oh rap, yeah, the premiere. It was the, a whole different beast. The, right, right, right. the rap party was wild. That was maybe the wildest rap party that I've ever seen or heard of. It was, you're right, it was in like a Russian underground karaoke bar yeah. in Midtown. And we closed that place down. Shut it down. Oh my. That shit went on all night. Oh. I was lit up in the corner with Rappaport. Oh, me There were too. chicks all over me. But, you know, it's funny, man. Yeah. That was the day after we rapped. Yeah. And then after that party, me, you, and Vince went to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania for you to open for Saget at the Sands. Holy shit. It was a war. The whole thing was such a whirlwind. That and I, Look, I'm not just saying this because I've shown my man as a loser to so many different people. And I say this as a fan of comedy. If I... I were growing up and this movie came on television and I watched it, I would love it and tell everybody about it. It's that perfect blend of comedy and character and you just enjoy what you're watching and you learn something and you care. And that's isn't that what comedies are? Isn't that what it's supposed to be? Absolutely, man. I appreciate you saying that big time. And I feel the same way about that movie because there are so many awesome moments that I enjoy. Obviously, there's a hundred that, you know, I have many heart attacks watching because of, you know, whatever battles I had. But my man is a loser I would fight for to the point where I stole. I got the CEO of Lionsgate, John Feltheimer, <laughs> who's worth of $80 million. The guy got a bonus of $30 million last year. He don't know who the fuck I am. But I got his email somehow. And I emailed him. And I emailed John Feldheimer, the CEO of Lionsgate. And I just said, hey, man. This is Mike Young, writer and director of My Man is a Loser. You just bought my film. Thank you so much. If I was you, I would really, really get behind this movie and put some real money into the marketing of it <laughs> because I think you have a hit here and could really strike a chord with people. Just want to thank you again, you know, for, for picking up my movie. Hope to talk to you soon. And I think I even dropped like a mutual friend in there <laughs> because Dan Gilbert, the owner of the Cavs, is a friend of mine. And Dan is a friend that knows him. I was like, I think we have a mutual friend in Dan Gilbert. I threw that at the end. Um, obviously, I never, ever heard from John Feldheimer. Never will. <laughs> but we're all just human beings. 
And as long as your intentions are in the in the right are are correct, and they're in the right place, say whatever the fuck you want to whoever the fuck you want. That's what I say. So if I met Feldheimer tomorrow, I would say, "Hey, bro, Mike Young, nice to meet you. You got my man as a loser." Listen, bro, I would I'd kick a little money into the marketing again of this movie. I think you're missing out here. I would say that because I believe that. Yeah, I think that this movie it's. It's a moment in time. It represents the the present day, and you know some films. It you know they come out and then they kind of they don't resonate till later. Exactly. Yeah. They, they don't resonate till later. They become kind of cult classics. That's how I feel. My man's a loser is going to be in when it's all said and done. Appreciate Honestly, it. and and look, we talked about it a little bit earlier. I mean, the revitalization. Of John Stamos, Brian Callen, Michael Rappaport. Look what they're doing now. All three of them are in the zeitgeist all over the place. Do you think Lionsgate is aware of that? Like, do you think these people are aware of how out there these guys are? Like, literally, all three of them are doing hits right now. Rappaport's podcast is a hit. Stamos' show is a hit. Callen is a hit. Are, is anyone paying attention do I need to call Feldheimer again? I'll call this guy. If somebody could get me John... Does he have a daughter? <laughs> Is she my age? Is she hot? I'll meet her at One Oak. Yeah, show her a good time. You know what I mean? It's gonna... You know how it is with the streaming in the world today. When, when My Man is a Loser came out initially, VOD was still kind of in its infancy. Totally. I mean, I think totally. we were one of the first movies that did a VOD limited theatrical release. Yeah, we were. And listen, it's over 600,000 downloads, whatever that means. I have no idea. I haven't seen any extra money from it, but it's a lot of people watching it. So, and last week I got recognized <laughs> for my role in My Man is a Loser. Oh, right. At the bar. <laughs> I was in My Man is a Loser. You know, I put myself in my movies. That's just what I'm going to do. And I had a moment, I had a scene with Stamos, Rappaport, and Callan where I'm like taking Stamos's girl from him. And uh, this girl at a bar last week, she's like, were you in My Man as a Loser? I'm like, Puh, I wrote and directed it. What's your friend's name? <laughs> yeah, she said, what did she say? Her mom, she watched Recommend, it with her. Yeah, her mom recommended it <laughs> or something. Yeah. Anyway, her mom was probably my age. She was hot. It's, <laughs> been, a, it's, it's, it's been a great uh, process after the fact, too, because, you know, that movie strikes a chord with people. I mean... Yeah, I mean, you know, I haven't watched it in a minute just because I just because just I haven't. But, yes, everybody who's watching it that's come to me, they're all digging it. And, they, and what I love is they dig it for different reasons. And I love when certain dudes are like, dude, I'm Marty. You know what I mean? I'm so fucking Marty. And I see dudes are like, dude, I need to fucking get a girl now. I'm so in that Mike zone. You know, I'm fucking, I'm a clown like Paul. Like people relate for different reasons. But, you know, look, themes are themes. And like, you know, when you strike a chord with a theme, there's just nothing you could do. You're either connected to it or you're not. People definitely were connecting to that movie. You know, did my producers overspend in my opinion yes were they so excited to be in the movie business that they just said yes to everything did stamos need a big ass rock and roll trailer to be able to <laughs> chill in for an independent movie no when he got one did did rapaport want one too and get one yes 
I think Callan, who's fucking all, I don't even know if he's ever been in a movie. I think he got a trailer. Everybody was getting trailers. It was unbelievable. These guys, you know, lesson learned to them. You can make a great movie and it doesn't have to cost $5 million. You directed a $5 million major motion picture. Do you even believe that? What does that mean? Yeah, that sounds crazy. It is crazy. In New York City. New York City. Somebody put $5 million into a bank account and said, Mike, go lead us, go lead us to the promised land. And I, you know, I did what I could do. I did. I love I got, the movie. I, I got the movie fucking made, done, bought, and put out. So, you know, if a dude from fucking, you know, if, if a dude from Detroit who grew up with a dad in the scrap business and a mom who was a public school teacher can do it, can make a movie, there's no stopping anybody who, you know... Who, who wants to do it? And I'm not talking about like live your dream. That's bullshit. I don't believe. You know, like I'm not down with like uh, your dream. When people talk about dreams, the dream's over. Live. I'm talking about live your reality. You know, in your heart, people know what they're capable of. So when you hear people who are like, "Yo, I always wanted to be a," did it, I don't believe you. You know what I mean? Like if you wanted to be what you're saying you want to be, you would just be doing it. Even if it's not on a big level, you would just be doing it. I will, you know, like the dream is when you're in high school and you're hard dreaming. Like you ever, I remember high school, I'd just be dreaming hard, like in class, like of doing comedy and like making a movie. But those are like the hard dreams. But when you start actually doing the shit, the dream dies quick and reality kicks in. And you're like, oh, this is work. This it's is like business work and it's business. And my favorite thing of this whole weird business that we're in is there's no ceiling so you can just keep getting better and better and learning and learn there's just no ceiling to it not to comedy not to writing not to making a movie i love that there's no ceiling so my goal is just get better do some different shit stretch the muscles of you know of, of other styles and just like keep rocking it out and i think on the next podcast on the next episode We'll talk about the experience of a stand-up guy, which is my new movie that comes out February 9th. The Orchard bought it. Another great company. Written and directed by Mike Young. Written and directed by myself. I was fortunate enough. And by the way, the finance financiers of a stand-up guy and producers, they were at the premiere of My Man is a Loser. And they came out of that movie and they met me. And they said, Mike, we loved your movie. And two weeks later, I got a phone call from Danny, uh, who's in the starring in my movie and who is also a producer on the movie. And he said, Mike, my money guys want to talk to you about making a comedy. And it was just like that. And it literally was two weeks after My Man is a Loser premiered that I signed on for a stand-up guy. So I feel blessed. I feel fortunate. And that movie got made done and sold just as well and I love it just as much for other reasons and the battles were heavier for other reasons and we'll get into that next time but I think this is a perfect place to to wrap up a story that needed to be told about my man as a loser unless you could think of anything else on that set I mean there was you know there's so many moments but I think I think you get a good flavor of what it took to make an independent film in New York City 
Oh. And slow sip tequila very lightly at night. We Yeah, every day was a hard work day. I think every day after we shot, and I mean, these are 10, 12-hour days. Like, there was no short days. It was never like, okay, everybody, rap. We're early. So we're always going, we're always up up against it. And uh, we would always go out for a drink afterwards. Always. Me, Jordy, and Vince would go out for a drink. We all pony up to a bar. What was that bar? PJ Clark's. Oh, PJ Clark's was like the main 60th. one. like 60th. Yeah, over by Lincoln Center. Yeah, PJ Clark's. We go pony up there. We talk about the day. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we talk about the next day. And we would talk about, let's prep for the next day. And I, and I would get Harlan, my DP, who was brilliant and awesome to work with. And he and I would map out the shot list for the next day and just try to be prepared. And I love those moments because I'd look at the script and, you know, of course, I would go home to my apartment and uh, and I would do little punch-ups or little rewrites if I had to, and I usually did, and send in the script that night at about 11, go to bed at midnight, up at 6, boom, on set by 7, game on. And, you know, the way I lived in New York was kind of beautiful at the moment, too, so that's like a whole nother story, but my buddy Jesse who is married to Sarah Blakely, who created Spanx. And he's got a new book out now. Jesse's got a new book out, which is so funny, called Living with a Seal. But Jesse and Sarah are great friends of mine. And so while I was living in New York shooting the movie, they were kind enough to give me their apartment, (laughs) which was basically a $60 million fucking palace looking over Central Park. And the and I took him up on it because obviously it was so beautiful and comfortable for me to come home to. And no one was allowed in it. I never saw this place. It was Mike's fortress of solitude. No one was allowed up there. Not a human being. Jesse said to me, Mike, you could take the place. And by the way, this is where Denzel lives. This is where Bob Costas lives. This is this is the pimp building of all time in New York. I couldn't bring anybody to the apartment and not a single human being ever saw the inside of the apartment and nobody knew which building I lived in. So when the crew would drop me off at the end of the day, I would say, just drop me off at Whole Foods. And they'd be like, where do you live? I'm like, ah, I just, I, yeah, I just I'm behind Whole Foods. And I had another apartment. I had a place that was just, it was fine. But the place I was living in, the landlord, they were trying to sell the place and she kept bothering me every day about keeping it clean and get your shoes out of the living room. And I'm like, bitch, you think I'm going to fucking think about my shoes in the middle of the living room while I'm making a movie? (laughs) Get your shit straight and quit trying to rob my producers of money because I can see what your hustle is. And her, their hustle was get the money from, you know, they knew they had money coming in on a movie and we could take advantage of these guys. So I got my producer to cut the lease on that, save the money on that, and I went and I stayed at Jesse and Sarah's and had the greatest, it was just the greatest situation I could be in because being stressed, ridiculous all day, I could come home and chill on the most comfortable couch made in America. Oh, there's one moment that I remember, and it's going to be ridiculous to say these words in the same sentence. Okay, this was the day that we shot at the strip club. And we're, <laughs> which that was Sapphire. We're at Sapphire, yep. which is like basically under uh, the Queensboro Bridge, and for a number of reasons. And we get in there at 6 a.m. 
and we leave at 6 p.m. It was a 12-hour day. So being at a strip club at 6 in the morning with the lights on is disgusting. It is. It just brings up all the demons that you're trying to get away from. And this was the first day on set that your mom was coming in. Oh, Jesus. And it was the first time I met your mom, and I I love your mom. And it's... You know, and you're like, you take care of my mom, and it's like, I don't know where I should tell her to sit. You know, don't touch that. And when Jordan's babysitting your mother <laughs> in a strip club in New York City, you know you're doing an independent movie. <laughs> and I, what I, why I even brought it up because I remember at the end of the day, and it was a great day, and it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It's actually the catalyst of the movie because that's. You know, single yeah. Mike takes Paul and Marty to the strip club because they asked to, and and craziness ensues. That's yep. that's the the basic crux of the movie is you know don't let your friends take a picture at a strip club because only, you know bad things are going to happen, and it's it happens all the time in this uh, digital age. And so we finish at six p.m. We walk out of the strip club, and it's still light out. And I walked with you and your mom through Central Park from the east side to the west side. And as we're walking through Central Park, we're just like, this is unbelievable. And right as we enter the park, there's Ben Stiller shooting The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. No shit. Right yep. there. And just me, you, and your mom walking through and then, you know, go to the west side, drop you off at your palace, which no one's allowed to see. Not even my mom. <laughs> That was definitely a moment that I remember because that was that was a cra- that was just a surreal day because we you know it, it it was our strip club for the day and the strippers are there and by the way my grandma who loves my man as a loser is very upset at you that you didn't hire uh, strippers who had bigger breasts. Tell your grandma I'm upset too. <laughs> I didn't even pick. I was picking out pictures, and when I got to the set, a bunch of small-breasted strippers showed up. So yeah, tell your grandma I'm with her on that. That wasn't my move. Believe me, I had less. Ca- I had less casting extra, you know, power than I thought. Believe me. <laughs> Girls were showing up that couldn't dance. One girl had a bullet wound in her kneecap. <laughs> Some girl had on a fishnet outfit oh that didn't make sense. <laughs> Ronnie the limo driver rolls up. That was great. That's a moment. That's yeah. a moment. I had Ronnie the limo driver from, from, from the Howard Stern show. He was in the scene. And when I met Ronnie, he was so classic of a character that I didn't have to do anything but write a dialogue towards his voice. Like he was just, he is a he is that dude. And I remember. He's like, when I met him, he goes, look up on YouTube, just, you know, see what I do, you know, in these strip clubs. I go around, you know, the country and you can see what I wear and you get a vibe of my voice. So, <laughs> so I look at, I look him up on YouTube and I see like, you know, he hosts like a bunch of strip club places and he's, you know, he's a famous, he's super famous on the Stern show and he's a super cool, badass dude. And when he shows up on set, he's wearing the dopest black pinstripe suit. So I'm like, great, Ronnie already has his awesome outfit. He's he's in. This is it. He doesn't have to do shit. And he pulls out a hanger with some bullshit clothing on it. He's like, this is what I'm gonna wear. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. It was like it was like a t-shirt. I think there were shorts. I was like, no, man. No, you're gonna wear what you're wearing. That's the outfit. And we had like a debate for like fifteen minutes back and forth, <laughs> and thank God he like he he wore what we want we we needed him to wear, and it was uh, he delivered. He went toe to toe with Rappaport in the strip club, 
And Ronnie delivered. And it got me on the Stern show, on the wrap-up show, which is a whole nother fucking... These are stories that need to be told, and I'm realizing as I'm talking, because they need to be told. And I don't know if this is the time to tell it, but, you know, I dated a girl, you know, from the Howard Stern show. (laughs) So shit came full circle, because the girl that Benji dates, or dated, I don't even know if they're still dating, I have no idea. I dated her for like a year before she ever moved to New York. So when I got to do the wrap-up show, somehow they knew that I dated her. And they asked me straight up, yo, do you want to talk about it? And uh, that was for the My Man is a Loser promotion, right? Yeah, that was for My Man is a Loser promotion. Me and Michael Rappaport did the wrap-up show. And so I told them, you know what, I'm a gentleman, bro. I don't want to bring up my relationship with her. Let's just save that for another time. And... uh, and and that was it. And the and the Howard Stern wrap up show kicked off promotion for the for the for the movie. Stamos hit the talk show circuit. My man is a loser came out. Thank you Lionsgate. Thank you everybody that's been watching it. I had an amazing time making it. And there's a hundred more stories that I could tell you about. But I think you get the gist. And this has been one fun episode to talk about. CBS talk. Radio Play dot it. Stories that need to be told. Mike Young, thank you. Day one in the studio feels good. I like this chair. We got a whole lot of mo coming. Cool. Thank you guys. We will talk to you next time.